Words sometimes carry associations with parts of the body. So for example, we associate love with the heart, fear with the back of the neck, greed with the eyes. And if our head is big or hot, then we're proud. Yeah, we connect feeling a certain way with how our bodies feel. I don't process emotion with my heart, but that's where I imagine feelings are. I'm not embarrassed in my cheeks, but that's where I feel the embarrassment. We've got phrases like heartbroken, or we may say things like, they've got a really big heart. And nobody's thinking, oh man, that man needs immediate medical intervention. We understand the metaphor so intuitively that we don't hear it as a metaphor. We just hear what it means. Honestly, it seems kind of random that we chose the heart to be the embodied center of love and kindness. Yeah, I would have linked the heart with the emotion of fear, if anything, since you can feel your heart pound when you're afraid. That's a good point. And it illustrates how our associations are sometimes kind of subjective and cultural. We could have drawn the connections differently, and the Israelites didn't always draw the connections in the same places we do. For example, to be angry in their culture was connected to a person's nose. They would say your nose was hot to describe you as angry. Their word compassion was also linked to the body, but not to the heart. In Hebrew and Greek, the word compassion was imagined and experienced as a feeling in the womb and guts. The word was rakum. The Hebrew word rakum is actually spelled with the same letters as the word for womb. And that's a great picture of compassion for three reasons. First, it invokes the idea of real depth. Some of the deepest emotions a mother ever feels are connected to her womb. In Genesis 43, we get this idea. This guy named Joseph had been completely betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery by them. But Joseph actually ended up becoming basically the prime minister of the Egyptian empire during a famine. Yeah, his brothers came to Egypt looking for food, and they didn't realize they were asking for food from their long-lost brother. Through an elaborate test, Joseph sees that they weren't the same people who had sold him into slavery. They had changed. After Joseph sees this, verse 30 says, Then Joseph hurried out, for his rakum had grown warm for his brothers, and he sought a place to weep and he entered his chamber and wept there. So we get this picture of Joseph feeling compassion deep inside, being touched at the very center of who he is. Like he's basically just been sucker punched in his feelings. A second connection to notice about Rakum is the imagery of a mother's compassion for her baby. Rakum was a feeling like what a mother feels for her little kicking baby. Rakum was tender and resolute care. In Psalm 103, 13, it actually says, As a father shows rakum to his children, so the Lord shows rakum to those who fear him. And in Isaiah 46, 3, the Lord says, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. So God actually uses the metaphor of a pregnant mother to describe his compassion for his children. The way a mother cherishes and gives health in her body to her children That's how the Lord feels about us. Yeah, and consider the physical toll that having a baby requires. There's a real cost to it. Yeah, we have to take special daily vitamins, nausea in the first trimester, sleeplessness, growing discomfort, and then labor itself, followed by weeks of recovery. 
Even after labor, the baby still has to nurse and a mother has to heal. I remember my physical therapist telling me that I wasn't supposed to walk more than five minutes total each day for the first two weeks. Between the pregnancy, labor, recovery, and nursing, a mother's body really doesn't belong to herself for a solid two years. There's a real self-sacrifice, a mother giving up comfort and health for the life of her baby. But the cost is counted as nothing because of the joy that comes with the child. This is such a powerful picture, and God says, that's what I'm like. And we see that so clearly with Christ, that He gave up His own body and life for ours. And that really leads us to the third aspect of compassion. It's painful. So rakum means wombi compassion, but it also means guts. And the Greek word splachnizomai carries a really visceral image of the intestines. Probably not going to see intestines on many Valentine's Day cards. Very true. It sounds gross, but as with the Hebrew connection to the womb, the Greek connection to the guts offers us a really insightful picture. Kaylee, when are you most aware of your intestines? What does that feel like? Well, there are two main times. The first is when I eat Taco Bell. Yeah, that's really gross. Yes, uh, Taco Bell is not a sponsor. More insightful, perhaps is that I'm aware of my guts in times of intense grief. Grief can make us feel sick to our stomach. Heartbreak makes my gut reverberate with a deep, miserable ache that embodies the loss I feel. We feel our guts when we experience heartbreak. In grief, our minds slow down and almost move in slow motion. Meanwhile, our gut feels like it's imploding, like we're being pulled down into a void. That feeling, that anxiety, that sorrow becomes physical pain. That's how God feels towards those who suffer. Our suffering doesn't just cause us pain, it causes Him pain. And this gets so weighty and practical. When we suffer, we often blame God as if He's hurting us, when in reality, our suffering is as much His as ours. God, in His compassion, joins into our sorrows. We are all familiar with the command to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. But there's this profound hint in that passage. God tells us to mourn with those who mourn because that's what He is already doing. Love always causes the pains of the object to be felt as its own and God's love is the deepest of all. Isaiah 63 spells this out. It says of God, in all Israel's distress, he too was distressed. Pause on that. In all of it, every last bit, he was distressed. That's why David could say that he had sinned against the Lord alone when he oppressed Bathsheba and Uriah. That's why Jesus says, whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. God tells us to mourn with those who mourn, and that command itself tells us something about what compassion looks like, what God looks like. God is full of compassion. He feels the suffering of His beloved as His own. O oh, listener, you who mourn, beloved, your grief is felt by God as an imploding sting in His gut. He grieves with you. 
God feels our pain at multiple levels. First, as we've said, God feels our pain through His loving empathy. His love for us connects Him to our pain. But it's more than just that. God also dwells in us through His Spirit, knows our very thoughts, communes with our spirit. That's the argument Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 6 when he says that Christians should avoid sexual immorality. He argues, God's Spirit is in you. You are God's temple. Don't bring the shame of sexual sin into the very temple of God. He says, Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. This is a scary thought when it comes to our sin, but the other side of the coin is beautiful. God is right there with us in our pain and grief. And it doesn't even stop there. Isaiah 53, 4 shows that Jesus took it a step further. Not only does he empathize, and not only does he walk with us through his spirit, but he actually made our griefs his own. He took them from us. Jesus entered into the very heart of suffering, carrying it for us. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. And carrying our grief meant carrying the cross. His compassion wasn't just a metaphorical stab in his gut. It was a literal one. On the cross, he was stabbed in the gut. Listener, this is our God. He is a God who walks with you, who sees you, who enters into your pain, even offers to take it. When you are struck with grief, do not run from God run to him. Pain will always force you to do one or the other. God gave everything to take your pain and wipe the tears from your eyes. When Jesus gave the famous story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, he used splachnizomai to describe the father. The son had just insinuated, Dad, I wish you were dead already. He asked for his inheritance while his father was still alive. Then he went and squandered it, only to return in poverty and desperation. Yet, when the father sees the son, Jesus says, He felt splachnizomai and ran and embraced him and kissed him. When Splachnizomai rose in the father, he couldn't help but run towards his son and fully restore him. He even gave him undeserved honor and authority. And Jesus tells this parable to show how God feels about sinful people. When God describes himself, this is the first characteristic that he gives, that he is compassionate. He feels deeply towards us the way a mother does for her child. He enters into our pain. Jesus set his face toward the cross, sacrificing his life for ours. This type of compassion changes us. I mean, we can't just look at that and stay the same. To think that God cares that much about us, it's unbelievable. God invites us to be like him, to be conduits of his compassion to the people around us. He tells us to share one another's burdens. We're supposed to share with anyone who has a need to be the hands and feet of Jesus, loving the least, the last, the lost, the prodigal. Jesus' compassion often moved him to interrupt his plans and take action to heal and restore. And when God says to mourn with those who mourn, he is really telling us to join him. 
because he's already there, mourning with those who mourn. I sometimes feel pity, but I don't usually want to empathize so deeply that I join the suffering of others. That's a real challenge. God invites us to feel this deep, visceral, sometimes even painful compassion for others. He invites us to move towards those who suffer, to empathize, and where possible, to be His hands and feet, showing love and restoring the lost. We'll leave with a quote from Psalm 78, verse 38. Yet He, being Rakum, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained His anger often and did not stir up all of His wrath. 